Hi everyone, welcome back to the London Health Podcast and our next Homeless Health episode. This series is inspired by the stories we tell ourselves to sleep well and we'll continue to dig into assumptions about homelessness through honest conversations, whilst also highlighting the work which is happening in London, the NHS, third sector organisations and local authorities to bring about transformational change for this population. Today, we're discussing whether homelessness is a housing or a health crisis. We'll also be considering where the responsibility for preventing homelessness lies. Do we need an enhanced health and social care or housing response or something integrated across all areas? Today, we're joined by Sarah Howe, who's the research project worker from homelessness support organisation Groundswell, and Jill Leng, homeless advisor from Public Health England, now known as Office for Health Improvement and Disparities. I'm also joined by Lisa Collins, who's a Homeless Health Deputy Programme Director at Healthy London Partnership. And my name's Alicia and I'm Communications Officer at HLP. So before we kick things off, I'd like to hand over to Jill and Sarah to introduce yourselves, tell our listeners a bit about what you do currently, your backgrounds and how you've both come to work in homelessness in London. So hi everyone, I'm Sarah. I'm a Research Officer at Groundswell. At Groundswell, we do three main things. We provide a health advocacy service for people currently experiencing homelessness and we also do peer research with people with lived experience. So for both of those services, we work with people with lived experience and they help us to do the peer research and they also work for us as advocates. Um, My work um, involves working with volunteers, training volunteers to deliver research um, going out, uh, doing focus groups with people currently experiencing homelessness and really trying to find out about people's experiences and what, what's, what's been good and what hasn't been good for them to really sort of make a difference and make a change. I previously worked as a youth worker. I've worked in supported housing and I also work for um, the leading care team as well. Thanks, Sarah. And uh, over to you, Jill. Um, so I'm Jill Lang. I work, work in um, OHID, as we are now, was Public Health England. Um, I've got a national role as being a health and homelessness advisor. And I suppose it's probably, again, like two things that I do. I think one of my roles is around working with government departments and advising them on, I suppose, how they can improve health outcomes through any action that they might take to prevent and end homelessness and, and more specifically, rough sleeping in recent times. Um, work with NHS England and other organisations like that, about how their programmes might also um, improve health outcomes for people experiencing homelessness. And the other part of my role is very much working with local areas and with people who've experienced homelessness, including the fabulous Groundswell, um, to really understand, I suppose, what the problems are, but also to try then to both advise but take their local experiences back into kind of what we do in government so we've got much more of a real-time kind of understanding about the problems are and we really try to work out how we can make changes more quickly um, than perhaps would be otherwise the case which is a brilliant job but also quite scary because I feel like I live in the middle of two bits of what goes on in homelessness and house. I have worked in housing and homelessness since almost 25 years. Um, It's terrifying. Started off in social housing, particularly in housing development, working for two housing associations in Greater Manchester. Um, But I was doing a job where I wasn't really doing that much with people and I wanted to get into more into working with people. So I started working much more with local government in local government. 
Um, I worked on supporting people and supported housing, and that's how I fell into health sort of 20 years ago now, um, working with what were the primary care trusts at the time, and I've never really left and, and shifted more and more into public health um, as time has go, gone on. And it's been such a it's such a great space to, to kind of really look at, um, I suppose, tackling social justice. Well, clearly we have a huge amount of knowledge and experience in the room, um, and I think our listeners will know Lisa by now. We've had, had a few episodes together, but Lisa, if you'd like to quickly introduce yourself as well, anyone who's new. Yeah, happy to. And um, yeah, my name's Lisa Collins and I'm a uh, Deputy Director for HLP. I've been a health service manager for 30 years and um, yeah, I've been with HLP since the start of this year. So this is all new and exciting to me. So yeah, Jill and Sarah has been in this game a long time and I'm learning lots since I've been in my role. So uh, yeah, that's me. Perfect, thank you. And so as a starting point, um, I thought it might just be worth sharing the legal definition of homelessness, which is uh, taken from UK government guidance, um, All Our Health, which we'll link to with this episode, which states that homelessness is a household that has no home in the UK or anywhere else in the world available and reasonable to occupy. It refers to the types of homelessness, including rooflessness, houselessness, living in insecure housing or living in inadequate housing. So it just suggests that the lack of secure housing and the risk of you losing your home is a key cause of homelessness. From our work, we know that there are many complex and uh, interlinking factors which can lead to someone experiencing homelessness, both individual and structural, from poverty, insecure employment, housing supply or affordability, family or relationship breakdowns, poor mental or physical health, trauma, substance abuse. I suppose to get going, Sarah, you've worked at Groundswell since 2018. Um, you've got a background in journalism, you are a qualified youth worker, so you have a wealth of insights and perspectives on this. From your experience and work supporting others, do you see homelessness as a health or a housing issue? Um, I'm wondering if your views have changed over the years as well. Well, <clears throat> I think part of the problem is we separate the two, but really you can't have health without being securely housed. Um, and there's so much research that actually has shown that without secure housing, people's physical and mental health really declines quite rapidly. The United Nations identifies adequate housing as a fundamental human right, defining it as the right to live somewhere with security, peace and dignity. And it further clarifies that these rights includes security of tenure, adequate conditions, protection against forced evictions and access to affordable housing. But in the UK, I've heard time and time again about issues in all of these areas um, for people who are currently experiencing homelessness or people who are unsecurely or unsafely housed. In our women's health research that we did, physical and mental health issues were often the cause of, of, of women becoming homeless, but they can also be caused by unsuitable housing as well. Many women that I spoke to spoke about damp, having no heat or hot water, no fault evictions, problems with antisocial behaviour or violence, um, universal credit issues, fleeing domestic violence or sexual exploitation. And so many women told me that they were turned away when asking for help with resources being gatekept. These, all these problems are much worse when women have children. And I've spoken to women who told me their child, you know, taken longer to learn to crawl, to learn to walk, because there's no floor space for them to actually develop their, their physical skills. 
women can experience injuries due to being placed in unsuitable housing. I spoke to many women who said they were placed on the top floor of a block with no lifts and having to carry children and shopping up flights and flights of stairs. You know, that that can cause really serious injury, especially over time. Women also told me time and time again about being placed in mixed hostels and experiencing gender-based violence or exploitation. There was a real lack of safe spaces for women in the UK and a lack of resources due to years of austerity and the current housing crisis. Something that happens quite often is people are moved out of borough or they're moved far away, um, away from family, away from children's schools. And if they try to refuse, they're, they're told that they've, you know, they've made themselves intentionally homeless. People experiencing multiple disadvantage and homelessness often have no choice. And that's, that's part of the problem as well. You know, I, I think a combined approach is needed. We know that Housing First works um, in Finland. They've done such a good job nearly eradicating homelessness. You know, we need to invest and services need to work together. So health, mental health, housing, to work together to get the best, the best outcome for the person actually involved. And we definitely need more trauma and gender informed services and to fight against systemic discrimination against people experiencing homelessness. So yeah, that's that's what I think about it really. I don't know if anyone else has got anything to add, Jill. It's just it's a shame that I don't I would not I'm glad this isn't kind of a visual as well as audio, but because otherwise listeners won't be able to see that I'm like smiling as broadly as I possibly can. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything you said, I'm like, yay. Um no, I completely, yeah, I completely agree. And I suppose the two things that I love, Sarah, is that um, when I suppose when I read the kind of notes of this podcast and when I talked to professionals about health, the very first thing I always say was like, what do you mean by health? Because usually it's like shorthand for the NHS. But you straight away started talking about the individual and the household, not just the individual, but perhaps children, for example. It's their health and well-being. And as such, wherever you live, your home and your community and your neighbourhood, that's what makes a difference to health. It's not a case of housing being separate. If Without housing, without a home, you don't have health. And I think that, yeah, so uh, everything you've said, Sarah, I just absolutely love. It's just really, yeah, maybe less professionals and more people with experience. <laughs> yeah, we definitely find that works. Definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, because I think in, um, so in my previous role, when I was in public health England, I used to have a broader role that was more about housing and not just about homelessness. Um, and we set about kind of, I suppose, trying to define a bit about what aspects of a home make a difference to someone's health and well-being? And we kind of, there's, a, there's a really, I suppose it's quite a simple framework. One is about whether that home is safe and healthy. So Sarah kind of described some of the, you know, the dangers of living in unsafe housing. The other one, you know, about suitability. And if you're overcrowded or if there isn't that much space and you've got a family, that makes a difference. And then the third one, the big one is, you know, is stability. And that's whether or not you might be at risk of homelessness or actually homeless. But I think those safe and suitable definitely can contribute towards instability and homelessness. I think the thing that not everyone realises is when you then do experience homelessness, you're quite often accommodated. That's if you are accommodated, you might be on the street or in a night shelter. Um, but if you are homeless, you are quite you temporarily you find yourself in somewhere that is unsafe and that is unsuitable so that experience of homelessness and not being you know feeling secure and safe and not knowing what's going to happen is, is exacerbated by you know I mean if you're on the streets obviously that's the absolute most worst case scenario but even some temporary you know temporary accommodation for families and children in particular is is just not a good place and yet that can be a temporary place for quite a long time. Lisa, just bringing you in as well, um, the current role and work stream for 
HLP is about looking to improve improve the health outcomes for people who are experiencing homelessness. So, I mean, we work for Healthy London Partnership. Health is in the name. Do you think that starting with health is an important part of the process or does it need to happen alongside housing, social care, other areas? It's a really good question. And just um, hearing Jill and Sarah speak, they're just so on the same page with everything that's been spoken about. And interestingly, coming into this role uh, this year, you know, I've been in healthcare for 30 years. So I'm just going to just backtrack a bit here. My perception before I came into this role was this, that homelessness was more of a housing issue. That was my perception. And as a health service manager, that, that worried me. And that was one of the reasons that we want to do this podcast, because I just feel that my health service colleagues do need to have more of an understanding of homelessness. And I know when I talk to some of my colleagues, you know, their perception is very much homelessness is a public health crisis, you know, and very much looking through the, the lens of health. But for me, what I'm observing, it's it's all it all needs to be integrated. And I love what you said as well about it's not just the health of the individual, it's the health of the family. And that's so right. And I think that's not always on our radar. Um, I guess one of the things I thought was quite interesting this year was if we have the assumption that uh, homelessness is a housing issue, I guess the pandemic showed us very, very clearly that when we took everybody in, it didn't resolve everybody's problems overnight. So I suppose what it really highlighted was the health issues that hadn't been resolved by putting a roof over someone's head. And and I guess some of those health issues that were highlighted aren't the easy ones to crack either. You know, they're going to be the mental health, they're going to be trauma. And I guess if you think the trauma is going to be the root of the substance misuse, it's going to be the root of addiction. But also, I think when you said earlier, Sarah, as well, you know, just it's a basic human right. And the fact that you don't have a roof over your head is going to cause trauma, it's going to cause ill health. And the stress that people must be under when they're in that situation must be unbearable because you, you, we need to have that the, the, a roof over our head and safe accommodation in order to be healthy, in order to heal. A conversation I had this week with one of our clinical leads, you know, we can't even start unlocking trauma until somebody's in safe accommodation. So I think it's really important that it is an integrated approach. And I think I, I always find it quite interesting coming sort of from my perspective, because I do think this, this, this is a big part of the jigsaw. And I'm always really keen for my health service colleagues, you know, who don't work in this area to have that full appreciation. Because, you know, on our very first podcast, the reason why we, we set it up was I remember having a conversation with uh, one of my clinical nurse directors when I was a general manager in Wales. And I was asking the question of, well, what happens if someone's homeless when we discharge them? Because we were all very busy looking at discharges. It was winter, winter planning. And the comment was, well, they just get, dis you know, they just get discharged to a park bench. And I was completely shocked by that response. And I'd never thought, also I'd never thought about it before because uh, it just hadn't been on my radar because I'd been working in different services. It really worried me. It really bothered me. And uh, coming into this role, I just felt that there just needs to be more communication around this, uh, especially for our health service colleagues, because, and I know that obviously we're doing a lot of work to to avoid discharge into the street. Jill, I know you're going to come in and say something about this now, but that's that was the perception well, it was a reality. It was it was a reality conversation that I had uh, not that many years ago. Over to you, Jill. Thanks, Lisa. Um, yeah, no, it was your mention of hospital discharge. You know, that's one of my programmes of work at the moment with London in particular. But I think that um, your experience of 
we're using hospital discharge as the exam as the example of well you know um i suppose the hospital staff feeling that they've done their job in treating an individual in hospital and when someone that person is medically fit or whatever the current terminology is they're then discharged and it's no longer that hospital's responsibility but you kind of think well what was the point of treating somebody what was the point of putting that investment and time and energy and care into somebody only to kind of not care about what happens next. But I just think that's a, there's a bigger reflection about um, health, the healthcare system being, a me, you know, primarily a medical model and treatment being the thing that the intervention, but beyond that, it's someone else's responsibility. And also that housing in itself is, is, is a complex or can appear to be kind of quite complex and difficult to engage with and lots of people involved at local level. So, for healthcare professionals who are there to do a job, to start for them to start going into that complex space of kind of housing and homelessness. Also, you think, well, actually, is that right? And I suppose that's where, to me now, the hospital discharge program, um, including the you know sort of the one in London, the idea that we might take people from that kind of difficult world of homelessness and housing, and and enable them to reach into hospital settings and similar for the clinicians to reach out of those hospital settings into the communities. I think A, that should provide a better, better care and support and that transfer of, and continuity of care for individuals. But hopefully those professionals will learn from each other and will begin to understand each other's language and worlds. And yeah, there won't be that handoff between, well, I've done my job, it's over to you now. There'll be that, you know, the person will be at the heart of it hopefully that's the ambition. <laughs> Absolutely and um, <clears throat> and it's really interesting because that was the thing that came to my mind was how can you've looked after somebody for a couple of weeks and um, and invested all that uh, that that love and care into that person to make them get better um, or to help them get better and then discharge them to the street it just did not make sense to me because healthcare professionals go into health because they're altruistic they want to make a difference and then it got me thinking well, it's obviously in the too hard box. And I think there is that feeling of I've done what I can do um, and I have to take the emotion out of the next step because I have no control over it. And that's that's the only um, conclusion I came to because I just thought I, otherwise it did not make sense to me coming from healthcare, how you can dedicate all that love and attention to an individual to really help support them when they're vulnerable and in, in, in need to discharge them to a park bench. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a fascinating topic, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure we can talk about this for a long time. But um, yeah, Sarah, what are your thoughts after hearing us talk about the health side of things? Um, we we've done a piece of work actually with Crisis about the Homelessness Reduction Act, a sort of an evaluation of whether that's you know been meaningful legislation that's sort of made a difference and what the impact has been. And I spoke to many people who, yeah, said they had been discharged from prison, hospitals, after being sections and just, yeah, literally having nowhere to go. But I've also heard of cases where health professionals, doctors have supported people with their housing and it has made such a difference. You know, one lady, the doctor stepped in and advocated for her and she was able to decline a property that wasn't suitable. And it really does make a difference when there is a combined approach because people in housing and people in the council, they listen a lot to, you know, healthcare professionals. Um, and if there was that little bit of sort of wiggle room and extra time for that to sort of become more prominent in the role, 
you know, it would make a massive difference, 100%. This is going to come in. I think, Sarah and Lucy, you've just both kind of just prompted me to remember something that I always... I find myself slipping into kind of this space where we just talk about kind of homelessness workforce or housing workforce and then healthcare workforce. And then it's a case of what, how do we bring those those two together? But I suppose the thing that the space that I, I try to, um, I'm trying to be kind of more involved in at the moment is that space around adult social care. Um, because within that, and that's, that, you know, really if adult social care was adequately resourced and the professions who work in, in adult social care, whether that be social workers or care workers or whoever were, you know, enabled through, you know, having access to the development and all of the things that we know that they need. And if there wasn't such a big gap in that workforce, actually, that is the bridging gap between the kind of crises end of homelessness and healthcare. And there are some amazing social workers and mental health social workers working in our space of homelessness and inclusion health. There are amazing allied health professionals, occupational therapists in particular, I come across quite a lot, um, who really do span that gap between what happens, say, for example, in hospital, but also in primary care and what happens, you know, kind of in the community more generally. It's just that, A, I don't think we are necessarily as cognizant of what their role is or could be. And obviously there's all those pressures on that kind of workforce. But I do think that, yeah, we could probably do more as part of integrating or joining our health and homelessness up, remembering that there is that kind of prevention, care and support bit in the middle as well. Because I do think there's a real, yeah, there's such a weight of experience and um, expertise there. And there's more that we could do to, to uh, yeah, I suppose bring more people into that space um, going forwards. Yeah, and I, just one thing that came to mind then, and I've heard the term before, critical friends. So I don't know if we've thought about this, um, but it almost feels like, and it's coming from, you know, when I when I worked as a clinical coordinator years ago. So before we kind of separated everything to make it more efficient, what we would have, a patient, would, they would refer into hospital and um, there would be somebody who would almost like be their critical friend all, all the way through. Um, just making sure all their appointments were booked and kept and follow them through the system. That could be clinical, it could be um, a clinical nurse specialist, or it could be an admin person. But it felt like we had some of this in place sort of 20 years ago, and it feels like we need something similar. So whether or not that is somebody dedicated for each hospital that is that critical friend, that when they've got somebody who has been recognised, and I suppose we're very focused on hospitals here at the moment, but there's anything that's kind of come into mind from my experience, but having somebody who's actually part of that discharge team, and this might have already been thought of, done, trialled, but to be that critical friend, to be able to handhold that person through the process. But then it feels like, where does that critical friend end? Because if we have got patients who've got complex problems because they're in this situation because of trauma, because of mental health issues, then it's not necessarily a, a you know a four to six week handholding process it probably looks like it could be a couple of years and I guess we just you know thinking about resources we just don't have the resources for that but I in an ideal world that's for me feels like a really good fit if you had somebody who is able to at the point of recognizing somebody is homeless um, if they're in healthcare because obviously we we see them from healthcare first then being able to just be in that handhold position um, to be able to walk them through all the different services and how we access them. And I guess, Jill, you're talking then about sort of resources comes into that. Because if things were, if, if, you know, social care was resourced properly, then that person who's handholding that patient could walk them nicely through that pathway. I don't know, That that's my idealistic view <laughs> of what the world could look or should look like, patient-centred. 
I think, I think it's, I mean, is it idealistic? I think that to some extent there is, there are those roles and Sarah certainly is more, is better equipped to talk about the homeless health peer advocates and kind of the role, the role that, that they, they play, um, the service that kind of Groundswell um, delivers. But I mean, more generally in the health system, we have advocates, we have care coordinators, we have care navigators. In homelessness, we have an awful lot of navigators um, or housing support workers. Or, and, you know, and I suppose in a, on a day-to-day -day basis, thinking about housing first, as Sarah was talking about before as well, there is, you know, the, the individual within a housing first tenancy should have somebody that there that is their kind of go-to person who will help them navigate kind of access to services. I suppose on the one hand, I absolutely agree. And there is lots of evidence to suggest that having that kind of lead professional, and, and by that I don't mean someone that's kind of very distant from an individual because they're a professional, but somebody who actually is very much advocating for that person at all points in time. But I just, I, I'm just fearful that that's not then, um, that, that role isn't at the kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We don't put a, na a, a navigator in there and not sort out the fact that the services in the system is broken and, and that because you know we just end up fine you know navigators particularly end up trying to help people access services that just aren't designed for or don't recognize that somebody perhaps has a chaotic life and actually has other priorities beyond turning up at that appointment at whatever time in the morning so the services need to change too and I suppose that's it so how do you get that balance but I think we definitely need more of, of what you're suggesting Lisa definitely um and for that also to be recognised more professionally. So we have in the children's space, we have kind of lead professionals. We have a whole model for how children and families are worked with. And that's been around for a really long time to safeguard. We don't have that in, in adults and we don't have that for you know people experiencing real sort of disadvantage. So how do we shift to that? But at the same time, how do we sort out the services so that they are all able to support and recognise individuals. Part of what we do is um, health advocacy work and it really is about making it as easy as possible for the person. So we'll go meet them at the house, put them in a taxi, take them to whatever appointment, wait with them, make sure you know it all goes well, make sure that everything's followed up on and people just they they a lot of people would rather someone go with them and support them in that sort of way. And like Jill said, people who have chaotic lives or people who are insecurely housed, you know, remembering appointments, getting to appointments, having money to travel to get to appointments, they're all massive barriers. And yeah, so having someone there to to take you, to make sure, to follow up and to advocate for you if necessary, that's really worked for um, a lot of our clients. Just very quickly, just to jump in. So, so Jill, if we've got a model then for children, could we not just replicate that methodology into adult safeguarding? Or have you tried? And does it is it a money issue that we can't do that? Sorry, that was just a quick <laughs> intercept there. I mean, personally, I would love to do it. And I quite often think, why do we reinvent how we work with people when we've already got models that we know that work and um, whether it's for children or you know actually there's a lot of similarities with how we 
ideally want to work with people experiencing homelessness and multiple disadvantage with people experience with learning disabilities and the, the sort of government's program that exists for them there's lots of similarities in how we should be doing things um so yeah i do think that there is a kind of model that we should move to and are we going in the right direction there's still there's been an awful lot of work fantastic work about adult safeguarding and homelessness in the last two or three years led by michael preston shoot and ad cooper and whole kind of movement of people there but whether it's enough to change the system and to have in place i suppose um a common way in which we understand what the risk factors are to an individual and a common agreement about okay well what triggers us escalating somebody what triggers us saying actually we need to reach out to that individual in their household or whatever and we need to support them in such a way to help them move on from whatever the crisis is we just don't have that kind of formalised or agreed framework across the workforces at the moment. So it's it varies, doesn't it? In each in every it's complete postcode lottery as to what services an individual gets and what, where they live. There's not a consistent and then no wonder that all the different professionals in the health system, social work, social care, homelessness and housing, no wonder we all struggle when everything there's no consistency. I'm just thinking now, Sarah, that it, it it's interesting because it feels like within this particular area homelessness there's a lot of third sector organizations that are coming in filling in the gaps yeah so part of me thinking like why 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 do we have to do that why why aren't these critical services already being provided for but then there's probably some benefit of actually having somebody sat outside the organization as well so i don't know what your thoughts are on that first of all i'm thinking there's a lot of gaps that are being filled here um, by organisations and charities that are coming in and seeing this is how we can help, which is fantastic. And if they weren't there, we'd be in a, in a worse place. But is there an advantage of having some organisations that are sort of slightly outside and they can they can see across organisations and they don't have any, you know, the sort of political tensions that they're working with? I don't know, Jill, what's your thoughts on that? There is a graph, though, that does that does really clearly communicate, I suppose, the, the change in expenditure, you know, national public expenditure over the last decade or two um, and showing a kind of, you know, I suppose a real shift away from kind of very localised spend in public services to very centralised um, spend. Um, so that has meant that I think the voluntary community sector has stepped in where local government, for example, just simply hasn't had the resource that it needs to be able to meet its, its statutory duties, for example, under the Care Act. Um, so, yeah, I think that has led to the voluntary sector sort of picking up a lot more. And I suppose what, you know, one of the most, the worrying thing for me on that is that it's quite often, and it does speak to your point, Lisa, about actually is it best to have, some, is it better for some people to have these external organisations? My worry is that, it's those people who perhaps need the most investment and the most care and support and longer term kind of care and support because of maybe, you know, experiences they've gone through in their lives that are actually the ones that have had the poorest experience with public services and the ones then that turn to the voluntary community sector. And it's become acceptable almost for our most complex, you know, those with the most complex needs to, for us to meet are actually the ones that are being met by the voluntary community sector, but not, not necessarily with us in a public service position, providing the best environment for those voluntary community sector organisations. And I mean, it's, I'm, things have changed massively over the years, but, you know, I once remember being in a local council and the night shelter at the time ringing up the housing options office saying, I've got somebody in front of me now with a knife. What do I do? And I'm just thinking, how how is that? How is that a thing? How is that? 
how has it become that this this church is essentially you know providing services to individuals or and not knowing what to do actually and I was sort of saying to the local council well what processes have you got in place you know what training how is this organization being supported and I'm sure we've moved on a long way from that I mean that was sort of 10-15 years ago but it's just stuck in my mind about actually what is the safest you know what is the best model thinking about an individual's needs and have we got the resources that we have available to us in public services are they focusing on the right thing um or the right you know the right people um it's a question i'm always asking but sarah i'm interested to know what your thoughts are the nhs it's supposed to be accessible for everybody but for the most complex people they just can't navigate it it's a system that's too much they've had bad experiences they've experienced discrimination or stigma you know, find it very, very difficult to engage. And I think a more co-produced co approach is needed. We'll speak to people with lived experience of homelessness, employ people with lived experience of homelessness. That's that's what Groundswell does. Um, you know, you go with someone, you've had that shared experience. There's no stigma, there's no judgment. You feel safer. And that's, that's how come our service works. You know, all of those, everybody, including myself, has lived experience of homelessness. 70% of the staff have lived experience of homelessness and all our volunteers. And just having that shared experience, you know, it, it, it works for people. It opens people up. It, it helps people be honest and it helps people share about their trauma as well. I think some services, I think in the UK, we don't deal with trauma well. You know, it's often the root of a lot of mental health and physical health, you know, a lot of issues. But do we really know how to treat it? Do we really have services in place that can deal with it effectively? Do we really have any service in place to address multiple disadvantage or sexual exploitation? It just seems that there's no, no real services, even dual diagnosis. I speak to people all the time who've, who've been labelled with a dual diagnosis. For those people trying to get support, apart from mental health to drug services, back to mental health, there's so many people caught in the middle, unable to get the service that they are entitled to and should receive and desperately needs because of trying to fit people in into a service that you need to adapt, you need to be flexible, you need to work in a trauma-informed way. And I just don't think services at the moment do that very well, especially with regards to, to trauma. I don't know what you guys think. No, I totally agree, Sarah. And I think as well, I think the, the other... The other thing that I think sometimes we're in danger of doing is saying that, you know, um, homelessness services, for example, or health services should be trauma informed. But actually all public services should be because, you know, people don't live their life within a single service. And, if, you know, there's no point kind of going from one to be re-traumatised by another. I suppose my my biggest worry is, well, many, but going, you know, thinking about the impact of the pandemic which we still have the pandemic it's not gone away um but that in itself has been very traumatic even you know and so whilst you mentioned everyone in Lisa and yeah obviously that's you know um maybe made the, the problems and the experiences of individuals much more visible I don't know that we've really thought about what the traumas associated with 
with with the pandemic and I was talking to one of Sarah's colleagues Dave he's the care coordinator in Westminster you know he and I were you know completely different roles he was in a hotel at the beginning of the pandemic I was on a phone 24 7 dealing with or trying to work out how we support people like Dave and the GPs and everyone to kind of support people in the hotels but our experiences you know the triggers and the anxiety that we feel thinking back to that time is so so similar it was uncanny and I just and I just think now we've got this other layer of trauma on top of so for people who've experienced homelessness yes they might have been housed during everyone in but we haven't dealt with the trauma that existed beforehand and the trauma that has now happened and then what's happened to them since and yeah the, the mental health sort of uh, you know crisis alongside the pandemic is such for everybody in the population is huge but for our population I think it's added yet another layer of complexity and yeah how we how we enable a trauma-informed workforce across all of the services that people come into contact with still remains one of the big challenges but I agree Sarah it's, it's got to be up there in terms of priorities it really does just jumping in here, it kind of we've covered so much um, in terms of looking ahead and what that perfect homelessness response looks like. From what Jill said, having all services which are trauma informed sounds like an aspiration from Sarah's kind of really helpful background and info on Groundswell and the peer advocacy services. It sounds like there's so much which mainstream services can learn from people with lived experience. So I think it's encompassing all of those areas to fill the gaps just as a way of wrapping up really and thinking about the prevention piece I think it from everything we've spoken about it does sound as if there are gaps between different areas between health housing social care and sometimes those are the gaps where people do fall and they can end up re-entering homelessness or physical mental health conditions can worsen so I suppose just as a way of closing up Jill Sarah Lisa what are your final thoughts and what does that what does a good solution look like in terms of having more integration or more trauma-informed care I'll jump in quickly because I think mine's going to be a quick one I think just hearing the conversation um today has been really interesting because I love what Sarah said about how the how people feel safe within um a an organisation like Groundswell where the people who are listening to them have had the same experience so they feel understood they feel listened to and they they you know there's no there's no there's no that stigma there that feels really really important I'm also hearing what Jill said as well about you know these are our most complex patients and we're leaving these most complex patients for charities and churches to fill the gap so there's obviously some some really big issues there, but I think it's important to recognise, first of all, if we're going to go patient centred, that it's important to have people who are supporting and working with them who have also had the same experience of um, homelessness so they, they could recognise where that person is and they, they can meet them on that level. That feels really important. And then training, because I guess if we've got organisations where we, we provide that training and support, if somebody comes at them with a knife, you think of like A&E staff, you know, the amount of training that we've given to them over the years. And it feels like we need to move some of that robust training into the charity sector, um, because I don't think it's a case of bringing it all in within healthcare. It feels like what we've got obviously has arrived as a solution to problems, and it's obviously fixing some of those some of those solutions. So for me, it feels like first of all, it's important that we've we've got organisations like Groundswell, but where can we add more training and support? 
to those people in and also in hostels, you know, because that's been coming up a lot recently about palliative care. We'll talk about that on another episode. <laughs> but it's like, how can we put training into these organisations where you've got maybe young people on the front desk who are volunteering, um, who just don't have that necessarily a backup and skills to deal with some of these complex patients. So that's that's my 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 two penneth, I suppose, really. Yeah, in integrated, but actually supporting more training to organisations like Groundswell. I'll go next because I'll let Sarah have the last word because <laughs> it's probably going to be the best, most powerful. Um, I think, I mean, Lisa, everything you've just kind of said, I think the only thing I'd written down was about people. So I know we talk about health and housing and care as being kind of separate things, but actually the thing that we have in common is the people and whether that's the workforce, whether that's the volunteers, um, you know, and actually in, you know, in the private sector, the private sector recognises that if the workforce isn't equipped, isn't supported, isn't cared for, doesn't feel confident, um, you know, then actually they won't provide the best service for the people that they're there to to, to kind of support and care for. Um, and actually, I just think, particularly with the pandemic, really recognising that everybody has gone, you know, everybody in the homelessness system, health and homelessness system was already going above and beyond pre-pandemic. We've had, you know, 18 months almost, you know, getting on for two years of this, of, of kind of the extra pressures. And I just think investing in supporting, caring for that workforce and the volunteers over the next, you know, few months and years and, and recognising the trauma that everyone has gone through will in turn have you know benefit those that were we exist to kind of try to support and move on away from homelessness so that's my only kind of thought I really you know we, we quite you know we talk about it with other words like integration and stuff like that but really if we just invested in people then that would happen I think but Sarah co-production working with people who have experience working with people who use the service it's so valuable and it's so important and it would save a lot, so much time and money, and it, it would really help people to use services without having issues. Um, it, it it takes time, but it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's you know to facilitate, to find out, to involve people. It's time well invested, um, and it's always worth it. And you always learn something you haven't even thought about. Um, it's so so valuable. Another thing, services working together providing people with really person-centred, holistic support, support, supporting people with what they want support with as well, not just throwing your, the organisation's agenda, like what, what you need to get done, working with them. You know, I spoke to people in the pandemic who have got glasses for the first time, they've had dentures fitted, and the difference that makes to somebody and to their self-esteem, you know, they it's you know the person was like I can see again I can actually see you know I can chew my foods it's stuff like that that's so important to people um so working with people in a person-centered way and finding out what's important to them and looking at goals and planning for the future you know helping people develop their aspirations and what they want to do and what they want to achieve in life that would be that would be a good start <laughs> Oh, great. Well, thank you both. I think that's a really nice point to end on, really, and actually thinking ahead to aspirations, like you said, Sarah. So I think um, definitely there's lots to take away and think about. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. Um, I'll leave Sarah, Lisa, Jill for you all to say your goodbyes as well. Uh, until next time. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Jill and Sarah, for coming. We really appreciate your time uh, this morning. And just to finally say, I love the fact that we all came down to 
when it comes down to the crux of it, it's all about the people at the centre, isn't it? It's all about the patient at the centre. So they, that's the thing that's gone across all this conversation, patient-centred, person-centred, people-centred. So thank you so much for coming. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks.